Hey everybody and welcome to The Remakers. I'm your host, Lily Spencer, and oh, you're in for such a treat. This conversation is with the one and only Richard Dennis. Richard is someone who many of you already know. He is an economist. He is the executive director of the Australia Institute, which is a very prominent independent uh, policy think tank based in Canberra. They have a number of really interesting arms, um, Center for Future Work, Nordic Policy Studies, Responsible Technology. And I think more than any other economic kind of voice or think tank representative that I can think of, what their gift is, is sort of debunking what Richard calls econobabble. All of the jargon and sort of BS, the veneer that is used to conceal kind of politics and power and choices that are being made, but justified in the name of the economy. Like we couldn't possibly do anything different because the economy would suffer and therefore so would all of us. This is an absolutely fabulous, hilarious, insightful, and eye-opening conversation as every conversation I have literally ever had with Richard is. Um, about the state of the economy right now, about what he would be doing differently, um, about what he really wants Australians to understand. He is just a really important voice and mentor. And I want to give him some credit here because he mentors people behind the scenes a lot. Uh, He did it for me when I was first starting out in my career as a newbie campaigner, nervously walking the halls of Parliament House, 22 years old, you know, had to go out and buy a suit. And he took the time to meet with me about what I was there to do and what I wanted and explain a little bit about how this place actually worked. I think he was uh, chief of staff for Natasha Statusvoya at the time. Um, So he's been around a long time. He talks about his inspiration as kind of the people that are actually championing um, change and doing this work on the ground in lots of little different ways and pockets and how he tries to kind of throw his expertise and weight behind them when and where he can. It's just a fabulous conversation that I think will leave you feeling more confident and empowered to call BS, uh, to advocate for what you want, to make your opinion heard, and to know that we can have nice things. You know, as he says, Australia is one of the richest countries in the world. We can have anything we want, maybe not everything we want. And so really a lot of this stuff doesn't come down to economics so much as politics and choices and who's making their voices heard. So I hope that you find this conversation to be an absolute shot in the arm. I certainly did in the best possible way. Here's Richard Dennis. on the Remakers podcast. Thanks for stopping by to chat to us. Thanks for having me. Look, I want to start with just a kind of getting to know you question. Why did you become an economist? Because <laughs> I tried to get a job in the coal mines and they wouldn't have me. True story. <laughs> tried to leave school in year 10. Uh, and then I did an accounting degree or enrolled in an accounting degree for no particular reason. Uh, but I failed accounting and did all right in economics. So um, just wound up doing economics. And that is the legacy we have today. <laughs> Failed ambitions. Failed ambitions. <laughs> um, why a coal mine? That was just a local job going when you were a kid or you especially wanted to work in one? 
No, it's just a well-paid local job. A um, bunch of friends worked in there and um, liked the idea of shift work. So I could surf in the day and um, often work at night. And do you still keep in touch with those friends who went into that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I grew up um, in sight of two coal-fired power stations and surrounded by coal mines. So I love it when people tell me that wind turbines are ugly because uh, <laughs> I, I, I could hear the coal-fired power stations from my bedroom. Wow. Um, well, you know, I think that's that's a, that's an interesting origin story. I did not know that about you. And look, you're someone who is a great communicator, which is so rare in your field. I know that you've written a lot of books. I've read many of them. Um, I go to your webinars. Like, first of all, thank you. Like, thank you for actually taking up this mantle years ago of trying to debunk econobabble and explain economics in everyday language for normal human beings and help us to feel like these debates, which seem like they're always where the real power lies and the real decisions are made, are not designed, like they're designed to be closed off to us, but they shouldn't be. Like all of us should be able to participate in talking about the kind of economy we want, what it should do, what it shouldn't do. Um, what do you find most frustrating? Like, what do you wish you could just wave a freaking wand and get people to understand once and for all about the economy and the way that we talk about it that's maybe done? Oh, look, if I could click my fingers and convince 25 million Australians of anything, it would be that economists aren't in charge of anything. Uh, and that in attacking economists, uh, they're, they're by, by design attacking the wrong people. Um, economists, economists aren't forcing elected governments to buy $350 billion worth of submarines. Economists aren't forcing this government or the previous government to spend a quarter of a trillion dollars on stage three tax cuts. Economists aren't forcing governments to spend $10 billion a year subsidising fossil fuels. These are political decisions. These are raw, obvious political decisions. The role of economists in this is to make the ridiculous seem inevitable, to, to justify the unjustifiable. You know, most of the economists talking about these things in public debate haven't done any actual economic research on these things. They're just there to wear a suit and sound important and assure the masses that even though it looks like a stinkingly bad idea, we must do it. We must do it for the economy. So, yeah, my real frustration is that people think that economics is driving all this stuff. And don't get me wrong, there's some dodgy economics around, but economists aren't in positions of power. Economists are in positions to conceal power. Like, the, the role of economic consultants, the role of economic experts, the role of, you know, the, the endless lineup of business people showing up on the news to tell us what the economy needs. The purpose of all that is to hide simple democratic decisions from people. Like we could collect more tax from the fossil fuel industry and spend more money on free childcare. There is nothing to stop Australia doing that except the lack of imagination or confidence of 25 million Australians to call bullshit when someone says we can't afford it. Right. All right. So let's, let's, we're diving right into it. Let's just talk about some <laughs> of these really stupid decisions. Like, can you explain to me, you know, why we are creating huge problems upstream and then trying to spend a fraction of that downstream to solve them. And the most obvious example that I know of, and maybe you know a better one, seems to be fossil fuels. Like, why the heck in a climate emergency are we subsidizing the fossil fuel industry? How do those subsidies even work? Like, I hear about them. 
How are we subsidizing them? Why are we subsidizing? Why are we still subsidizing them? Well, we're subsidizing them because our elected representatives want to. Now, why they want to, we can debate that. But let's be clear, it takes the will of the parliament to shovel our money onto the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and not just previous governments. I mean, the current Labor government is spending $1.5 billion of our dollars to subsidise the middle arm project up in the middle of uh, Darwin Harbour. And that's a project which is not viable without subsidy. And it's going to process, uh, it's going to process gas and, and turn it into uh, plastics and petrochemical products. And, and the business case for the whole thing says that without this subsidy, the whole Beetaloo Basin gas project might not go ahead. So why, why are we doing it? Because we want to. And when I say we, I mean our elected representatives. Why, why, why is there bipartisan support for this? Well, that's a more interesting question. Um, and I think it's because, uh, you know, as in, as in all countries, uh, Australia's democratic, uh, democratically elected parliament doesn't always replicate the desires of the public. And, you know, the environment movement's been calling for a carbon tax for years, but the Rudd Gillard carbon tax collected less revenue than the subsidies we were handing out. Why not? Why not start with why not start with just ending the subsidies? Now I don't know why, but you know that's democracy. So the people that want the subsidies are pretty determined to keep them. The people that want to stop the subsidies, you know, put off in that list clearly don't have the political power of those that want to keep yeah. it. And people that campaign for climate stuff have made their own decisions to campaign for other things rather than just take the subsidies off the big polluters. I don't know why. I mean, people have compared the fossil fuel lobby in Australia to the gun lobby in America. You know, it's just, it's so powerful that anyone that takes them on too hard, too directly has their political career ended. Is it just a matter of brute power like that, just real politique? No, no. And, and it's, of course, that's the mining industry spin to say that they're so powerful, you better not touch them. You know, isn't, isn't that great, like, to scare everyone that much? Uh, so, but look, in some sense, they're much better than the gun industry in the US because at least the gun industry is really visible. Uh, you know, most people don't even think about the fact that Australia's gas industry is overwhelmingly foreign-owned, pays almost no tax, employs almost no people, and causes an enormous amount of climate change, and we subsidise them for that. Like at least, at least people can see the guns in the US. Yeah, they can you know, see the effects. Yeah, yeah. This is just real inside baseball where we shovel our money onto those companies. Now, to be clear, Australia's a rich country, uh, and no one's breaking the law here. Um, if everyone's happy with this, okay, that's fine. We're allowed to waste money on crazy shit. Uh, but I don't think it's what most people think is happening, and certainly to the extent it does happen one of the justifications is that it's somehow good for the economy. Whereas Economics 101, and indeed all economics, but Economics 101 teaches us you tax things you want less of, you subsidise things you want more of. So when a government says it wants to tackle climate change, but then subsidises new fossil fuel projects, um, you might wonder what their real priorities are as opposed to what their stated priorities are. And I mean, that, you know, that also makes me think of the stage three tax cuts. And again, is this just, you know, they're too afraid to 
go back on something or give the opposition ammunition. It seems crazy if you want to reduce inequality. It seems crazy if you don't want to add to inflation. Why, in, in the politicians that you know, that you work with, that you talk to, you know, you're, you're a guy in Canberra, you're talking to people all the time. Like, why is this, why? Why is this happening? <laughs> you know, oh. are expectations too big? Because I think this is another thing where I look to you for guidance. When Labour get elected, their base expects so much more. They want so much more and they get so disappointed. You know, there's there's a few people who are quietly optimistic and there are people who are like full of rage and despair right now. I don't talk to many people who are like, yeah, cheering, you know, and partly I think that's because our side of politics isn't very good at celebrating wins. But like, where do you stand on this? Like, are they are they neoliberal light? Are they just afraid? What do you think? Oh, look, all sorts of things. I mean, the government doesn't exist. It's a, it's a prime minister. It's a cabinet. It's a party room. It's a party. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movement. Um, and some of the things they're doing are great, like Federal Corruption Commission. Boy, isn't that about time? The Australian Institute has been calling for that for over 10 years. And, you know, we got one. There's, no, there's nothing trivial about that whatsoever. Uh, and, you know, the robo-debt inquiry was important. Uh, but thanks to the creation of a Federal Corruption Commission, there's a hell of a lot of other departments now that are nervous about what that might find. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was really good policy, and I'm glad they delivered on that election promise. Um, uh, when it comes to stage three, well, let's be clear, this was Scott Morrison's idea made up when he was treasurer, even before he was prime minister. He was Malcolm Turnbull's treasurer when he made it up. Uh, he told us at the time it would easily pay for itself. The economy would be growing so fast and everything would be so good because of years of Liberal government. Don't worry about it. It's just a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of tax cuts. It goes overwhelmingly to people earning over 200,000 bucks. Well, you know, whatever. Labor went to the 2019 election thinking it was a bad idea. They went to the 2022 election thinking it was a good idea. Um, should they keep a promise or shouldn't they? I don't know. That's a tough question. But the, the economics are quite simple. These are poorly designed tax cuts. They will literally, I'm choosing my words carefully here, they will literally deliver nothing to people earning below $45,000, not a cent, and they will deliver $9,000 a year to people, brackets, mainly blokes, earning over $200,000 a year. Now, is labour allowed to uh, is labor allowed to delay that? Is it allowed to modify that? Or must it implement something at exactly the time and form that it promised before, before we saw real wages fall off a cliff and interest rates go through the roof? Now, I don't know. That's not economics. Let's be clear. Right? We're not talking about economics here. Uh, but if we do want to talk about economics, these stage three tax cuts will be inflationary. These stage three tax cuts will do nothing to help low and middle income earners cope with the cost of living crisis, right? There is no economic reason for them. But if the political reason is we have to keep all our promises, we have to, we have to, we have to, well, I'd just point out the government's just reneged on a promise on tax transparency. Uh, the government had committed to, uh, to a form of tax transparency to force multinational companies to spell out exactly what they did here in Australia and they just reneged on that promise. So I love it when people tell me that every promise is sacrosanct and you can't possibly break one because they just broke one and it was about tax. 
But to be clear, this is not a debate about economics, right? This is a debate about, you know, voters. And the Australia Institute's polled voters and said, would you prefer the government to uh, put the needs of the economy first or would you prefer them to keep all the promises? And most people actually said, put the economy first. So it's not clear that voters are waiting with baseball bats if they delay or modify yeah. stage three. Yeah, and we know that Dutton would try to make a meal out of it, but, you know, it's like stand for something, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Look, um, speaking of inflation, you've been really clear that uh, the Reserve Bank has not properly understood the causes of this bout of inflation that we've been experiencing. Now we have a new head of the Reserve Bank is going to be coming in. What, you know, so raising interest rates hasn't been very effective at curbing this bout of inflation because that's not where the problems come from. Uh, but it has been hurting a lot of people. Are there better ideas for reducing inflation that don't cause so much misery in the lives of ordinary people? And if so, why aren't we doing them? Uh, yeah, of course there are. Um, so about a year ago, the Australian Institute put out some research showing that most of the profits in Australia, sorry, most of the inflation in Australia was caused by growth of profits, not growth of wages. Now, when we put that out, we based it on a method that had been developed by a, a sketchy left-wing pinko outfit known as the European Central Bank. Oh, yeah. Heard of that. We literally, yeah, you know, like really kind of just deep conspiracy theory land people, the European Central Bank. So we literally took the method that they were using to break down the causes of inflation in Europe and we applied it to Australia. And what it showed was that profits were driving inflation. And... We put that research out and, you know, some people loved it, some people hated it. But what's interesting is that our, our machinery of state, our Reserve Bank and Treasury, uh, we know this from FOI requests, took a very close look at our research and concluded that it was flawed, misleading and really of no value whatsoever. Now, as luck would have it, the Financial Review FOI'd these reports and ran front page stories saying our research was silly, uh, even ran calls for us to withdraw and retract our research because it was so silly. And then the OECD put out some research on Australia showing exactly what we said. And then the, uh, the, 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 the UK central bank used the same method. And then the US Federal Reserve has been using the same method. So unfortunately here in Australia, the, the two organisations most responsible for policy development in relation to inflation, the Reserve Bank and Treasury, rather than looking at the data, rather than looking at methods being used around the world to understand that data, just went full defence and just said, there is no choice. And this is the real power of economics. It's to tell people that their good ideas are actually stupid and just sit up straight and listen to what your betters tell you. The Reserve Bank and Treasury told everybody, pull your heads in, we know how to control inflation, we're the experts on this, and we just have to load up people with mortgages uh, and hex debts with big interest payments and, you know, take one for the team, take it on the chin, sucks to be you. When, when that's not what economics says, <laughs> right? It's not, there's no book you can pick up that says, what does economics say? Right, and some person at Treasury is the only one that knows the page number. Um, you know, so unfortunately, we've our machinery of state, our Treasury and our Reserve Bank have been willfully blind 
to alternatives. And to give you some simple examples, like consumer price index, the CPI, that measures the price of stuff. The Reserve Bank's worried the consumer price index has been rising really fast. So imagine if we, I don't know, stop subsidizing the gas industry and I don't know, maybe taxed it a bit and then did something crazy like made childcare free. Would, would that reduce the consumer price index? Well, yes, because guess what? Childcare is in the consumer price index. What if we made, what if we got rid of the uh, coalition government's increase to uh, university fees? If we made university uh, fees cheaper, would that reduce the consumer price index? Oh, oh, yes, it would. If we made universities free the way it is in Norway, might, might we be able to lower the consumer price index quite a lot? Well, yes, we could. And that, cool, let's I love that let's example because it's always touted as this heyday, you know, back in the idyllic time before yonder, before neoliberalism took over the world, we had free university education in Australia, but we could never have it again. Like it's talked about in mythical terms as a Scandinavia. Like the things they're able to do, it's like it's not a real place. It's like they're people flying around with little wings and riding unicorns. Like, why are we so willing to learn from countries like the U.S.? But when it looks like maybe the Nordic countries have some good ideas, we go, oh, but that would never work here. Like, why are we so quick to, what is an idea that you would love us to adopt from, I mean, I'm jumping around a little bit here and please keep going if you want to keep talking about inflation, but I'm keen to, to get into some of the solutions, some of the ideas that we willfully ignore or that just need to be, you know, moved along on the Overton window a little bit. Like how, how do we start to shift some of these things? You're a treasurer or you've got the air of the treasurer for a day. What do you want to see happen? Well, I'll answer that. But the first thing we need to do is actually own the fact that when we hear a politician say we can't afford that, what they're telling us is I don't want to do that. Right? And we, we, the collective, we need to grow up and own the pain that the, 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 the treasurer or the health minister or the education minister, when they smile, and, and, and tell, them, tell us how they want to do everything they can to help us, but, quote, we just can't afford that, that what they're actually looking us in the eye and doing is lying and saying, I don't want to do that as much as I want the stage three tax cuts. I don't want to have free childcare as much as I want to subsidise the fossil fuel industry. I don't want to have free education as much as I want the AUKUS submarines. So it's actually comforting for us, the listener, it's comforting to believe that these ministers and other important people are deeply on our side, deeply, deeply on our side who share our passion and our vision and our priorities. It's just that they can't afford it when what they mean to say is they would prefer to spend money on other things. Now, that's fine. That's democracy. We have to make these choices. They are hard. We're one of the richest countries in the world. We can afford to do anything we want, but we can't afford to do everything we want. So if we want to spend $300 billion on subs and we want to spend $250 billion on tax cuts and we want to spend $10 billion a year on fossil fuel subsidies, then you know what? We won't be able to have the nice things they have in Norway and Sweden and France and Denmark and Germany. It's not mythical to have free higher education. 
not only does Germany give free higher education to all the Germans, it gives it to any refugees who happen to be there. So it's, you know, it's actually just comforting for people to believe that, oh, if only Australia's economy grew a bit more, maybe then we could afford some nice things. Now, you ask me what nice things I'd like. Well, there's nice things I'd like. But, you know, it's a democracy. All of our nice things are, are important. And then we just need to have an honest debate about priorities. The reason the Australia Institute has a Nordic Studies Centre is precisely to help show people that other people can afford nice things. I mean, let me, let me sum it up for you. In Norway, they tax their fossil fuel industry and give young people free education. In Australia, we subsidise our fossil fuel industry and charge young people a lot of money to go to uni. That's why politics matters. That's why democracy matters. And neoliberalism's greatest legacy is to convince people that we don't have those choices. It's to convince people that politics is boring. It's to convince people that governments can't help people live their lives better. And if we all have low enough expectations, then it's easy for them to get away with shoveling money onto the fossil fuel industry instead of, you know, people with malnutrition in aged care homes uh, or young people paying a fortune for their, for their higher education. So what would I do? Well, I'm pretty boring. I would do what I always tend to do. I'd focus on all the ways we could collect a shit ton more revenue and I'd start with getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies and I'd start with scrapping the stage three tax cuts and I would introduce new resource rent taxes on our minerals industry the way that other countries do. And then I would say to you and everyone else, you're welcome. There's a lazy $100 billion. $100 billion. What do you want to do with it? Right? Because I'm, I'm okay. Like, I don't, you know, I'm good. I, I just like, I just like a nice sandwich for lunch, you know, and, and a bit of peace and quiet. But, but I, you know, I, it's a democracy. I'll, I'll help people deliver the revenue. You kids sort it out what you want to spend it on. But if you, if you don't, we will keep subsidising the fossil fuel industry. We'll keep subsidising private schools. We'll keep subsidising private hospitals. We'll keep subsidising retirement incomes of millionaires. Right? It's a great place to be rich, Australia. It is a fantastic country to be rich in. And if we want to change things, we could, or we could, you know, we could sit there and nod earnestly when, when people tell us we can't afford nice things. So I have to ask you this because there's going to be at least one person, at least, who will email me after this conversation and go, but federal taxes don't pay for things. We have a sovereign currency. We don't need to collect taxes to pay for things on a federal government level. And until everybody in the progressive movement understands this, we're never going to get the change we need. Yeah, oh, they're, they're, they're right and they're wrong. Um, they are absolutely right that governments don't need to accumulate a stockpile of cash before they can go and buy some nice things. There is literally no reason for the government to need to hoard up some literal currency before it can go out and make a payment. 
and that's you know that's an observation of modern monetary theory that's important. And really, I, I don't know anyone. Uh, I don't know anyone with an economics degree that would disagree with that. So that analysis is spot on as far as it goes. So to to repeat and for the avoidance of any doubt, does a government need to accumulate cash from a tax before it can go and buy some things? No, it does not. Fact one. Fact two, if we want to double the size of Australia's public sector, if we want to have a federal public sector that looks something like Norway or Sweden's, if we want to pay teachers more, nurses more, invest more in renewable energy, invest more in public transport, if, and that's a big if, if we want to enormously grow the size of the public sector over the next 20 years, we will need to collect a lot more tax from citizens and companies, not because we need to accumulate some, some money in a vault somewhere, but because if the government embarked on the massive spending project I just described and the private sector kept spending at exactly the same rate it currently is, we would wind up with enormous inflation because the government would literally just be competing with the private sector for all the scarce resources. So the purpose of tax is not to fund a stockpile of dollar coins that can be used. The purpose of tax is to literally make room in the economy by saying, okay, all the people about to get stage three tax cuts, you're going to have to spend less money on uh, getting your dog a haircut, uh, on the equestrian centre for your kid's private school, right? We're going to need to spend less of our scarce resources on things that rich people like and we're going to transfer those resources, the physical resources, the, the people, the land, the capital, into the provision of the things I just described. So it's actually wrong for people to say that modern monetary theory says we don't have to worry about tax. Uh, and if people don't believe me, well, A, go learn modern monetary theory <laughs> the way people like to tell me to. But B, uh, check out the webinar I did with Stephanie Kelton you know, the, probably the most famous, uh, most famous exponent of modern monetary theory in the world. Uh, and I, I, I did a webinar with Stephanie Kelton a few years ago specifically to address this issue. And I specifically said, but Stephanie, people tell me, Richard, why are you worried about tax? And she laughed and said, tax is really important. So MMT is right. You don't need to collect a dollar of tax before the federal government can go spend a dollar on things, but it's wrong and it's not modern monetary theory to suggest that if you want to have a much bigger public sector, you don't have to collect a lot more tax. You do. Thank you for clearing that up for me. That has been very, very helpful, and I will link to that webinar. Um, look, I, I want to send people to more of your work. And if they don't already follow you, if they don't already know that they can go to webinars that you're speaking on on a pretty regular basis, where do they need to go to go and, and uh, hear more from you? Yeah, we're easy to find. So it's not just me. Uh, the Australia Institute, uh, we're based in Canberra, but we're spread out around the country. Uh, we've got a team of great economists and other researchers and, uh, and social media and, and other people who work there. Um, people might know um, Greg Jericho, 
who writes for The Guardian, um, uh, Matt Grudnoff, one of our senior economists, David Richardson, senior economist. We've got lots of good economists working at the Australia Institute. Um, well, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. Um, we do regular webinars and events, but people would have to uh, sign up on our website uh, to say, you know, keep me, keep me posted. We don't want to spam people. Um, but um, yeah, look, it's, and also we, we just kind of pump out a lot of real-time commentary and analysis in, in video. We have a podcast series. Um, yeah, look, you know, uh, there's no doubt what we do uh, is easily accessible and a lot of people like it, but where people get a bit, and, and you know, it'd be great if more people engaged with it and shared it. But the real trick is not just to know the things that we're saying, it's to believe them and act on them. It's, it's to write to your member of parliament and say, don't tell me you can afford to do this, yeah. but you can't afford to do that. Yeah. You know, own, make our representatives own their priorities. Uh, and, and look, and, and to be clear, I don't mind that politicians disagree with me. They've got a tough job, right? And there is no right answer. But what really bugs me is, is, is people using my profession, economics, to hide their democratic preferences, to hide their priorities, and worst of all, to make people feel insecure and uncertain such that they're not willing to, you know, ask me the kind of great questions you asked today because in Australia we've made people feel silly for not understanding economics mm. rather than make people angry that how ridiculous that we'd be investing uh, so much money in submarines while pretending we can't afford to tackle climate change. How could that be? Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, thank you. You know, you've been absolutely brilliant. Um, I really encourage everyone to take up your advice and to not only become, you know, you equip people with confidence. You, you know, I think that is one of your real gifts is you give us the confidence to go, oh, yeah, I thought that was dumb. And now that the confidence says it's dumb. And I know that I'm just actually buying into something that I don't need to buy into. And I can make that voice heard and create the space for those people inside party politics to push harder, to advocate stronger, to stand up in the party room and say, I'm hearing from my constituents and they want this and they're not happy about that. I just want to, just as we're ending here, is there anything that inspires you that you would recommend people go and read or check out? Like, who do you go to? And I know you've got a great team around you and everyone, please definitely check out the Australia Institute. But like, is there any other recommendation that you would just like to leave us with for, for people who want to kind of learn more? Oh, look, I actually draw most of my inspiration from the individuals and organizations that are actually out there fighting to do something good. And I think, oh, I might be able to help them. They look like someone's bullshitting them. <laughs> they look like someone's lying to them. And, I, you know, it's, it's their bravery. It's their effort. It's their imagination. Uh, that inspires me. I mean, you know, to give you a small example, years ago, the Small Progress Association uh, in Walkworth was trying to stop an enormous coal mine being built by Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto said it would create thousands of jobs. I knew that was bullshit. So we did some work and, and literally proved in court that it wouldn't create any jobs. And, you know, but it, I wouldn't have done that work. My inspiration was this Progress Association you know, trying to look after themselves. So, so that's where, so I guess I'd say to everyone, just be aware, pay attention to what's happening around you. 
Um, intellectually, oh, I stand on the shoulders of giants, but my my favourite economists would be uh, Joan Robinson, a very famous uh, English economist, um, and J.K. Galbraith, a very famous uh, American economist, uh, and, of course, Joe Stiglitz, who, who just keeps writing about tax and inequality and... Um, you know, does does such important work, reminding people of the sort of things I've tried to talk about today. But yeah, no, my actual inspiration comes from the fact that I know enough about economics to know that we have all the economic tools to solve the problems we want to solve. Like we don't need, I hate to say this, this will disappoint some of your listeners, we don't need new economics to tackle most of these problems. We, we just need less bullshit. Uh, <laughs> And, and that's not meant to sound defensive of my profession. It can always improve. But anyone that thinks that we're causing climate change because economists don't know how to tackle it, well, we do. I told you at the beginning, you know, you tax things you want less of, you subsidise things you want more of. <laughs> you know, we can refine the economics all that we want, but we are ignoring the fundamental tenets. Uh, so, so, yeah, my inspiration is the problems and the people working on it. Look, I, I love that answer. And thank you so much. I'm going to be unfair now because you've made me think of one final question. I'm going to kick myself if I don't ask you. And that is growth. Because I think that's one place where people listening to this would go, but you economists are always banging on about how we need growth. And if we don't have growth, the world's going to end. And now the world's ending because we have too much economic growth and restraining our resources and passing planetary boundaries. Do economists yeah. believe that we need to keep growing the economy forever or the world's going to fall apart? Or is that just nope. something we've been told? Okay. Yeah. Like, just like economists tell you if we need to cut taxes for rich people and just like economists tell you we need to cut wages for poor people and just like economists tell you we have to subsidise the fossil fuel industry to help the transition away from fossil fuels. Sure, there's some economists that are obsessed with economic growth, but literally the economists that invented GDP, gross domestic product, the ones that invented it stuck a warning sticker on it. Don't use this as a measure of well-being. It's not. It's a really good indicator of how much stuff we bought and sold last year. Please, please, please don't use this as a measure of well-being. Please, please don't do that. It's not economics, right? And, and similarly, uh, you know, just to be clear, if we expanded the education system and health system and renewable energy and public transport, you know what would happen? Lots of economic growth. And I'd be fine with that. Right, because that's not, but not because I care about how much growth we have. I want to grow the things that are good. I want to shrink the things that are small. Uh, I, you know, if you pay your neighbour fifty bucks to give you a massage, and they pay you fifty bucks to give them a massage, you just contributed a hundred bucks to GDP, and you didn't harm anybody. Right, so some economic growth is really bad, and some economic growth is really good, and. It's actually bizarre for, for people to say economists and politicians are obsessed with economic growth. So I want to define success by not having economic growth. It's like you're just as obsessed as them, right? Economic growth should just be back in the background. It's, it's something we measure. It's, it shouldn't be our goal. I would argue it's not our goal, but people pretend it's our goal when they want to get their coal mine built. If we really wanted to increase economic growth, and I don't think we do, we'd make childcare free and help a lot more women into the labour market. That'd be great for economic growth, but conservatives hate the idea. Right, so you flatter them unfairly when you say that they're obsessed with economic growth, 
they're obsessed with spending money on things they like and 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 punching their enemies and they're just smart enough to create a veneer to create an excuse that says subsidizing my friends is good for the economy and therefore it will help you subsidizing your friends would be bad for the economy and that would hurt other people. Oh, I can't we get smarter at that too. There you go. Thank you so much. Uh, just, you know, honestly, I could just quote you all day and I frequently do. So thank you for um, giving all of us the pleasure of your company and your wisdom and your humor and just your ability to cut through the bullshit. We really do that. And my rage. And I'm glad rage. I could share rage with you. So right, um, rage. No, thanks for having me. All Great right. to chat. We will look forward to having you back again some other time. Take care and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to The Remakers. I'm the host, Lily Spencer, and I record my part of these conversations from the beautiful Guppy Guppy country on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. Just want to honor the incredible elders of these lands and waters and Aboriginal culture. 60,000 years is the oldest continuing civilization on Earth. I also want to pay a shout out to our producer, Anna Wilson, to my colleague and sometimes co-host, Dr. Millie Rooney. You can learn more about Australia Remade and everything we're about over on australiaremade.org. And in the meantime, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and subscribing, sending us your thoughts. We really appreciate all of the support that you give the podcast. We'll see you next time over on The Remakers. Remakers.